everyone and welcome to Women in Dev Presents the podcast. I'm your host Wallace Grant and I'm so excited to be bringing you our first episode this week. So thank you so so much for tuning in and just a quick reminder to hit subscribe on any of the places that you get podcasts so you won't miss out on any episodes in the future. Before we get into our amazing interview with Kavita Ramdas this month, I wanted to touch on some of the biggest international development stories. And just so you know, we're recording this at the end of August. And unsurprisingly, the news that has dominated many of us in the sector is the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan and the fallout from this. Now, I I can predict what's going to happen in a month's time, and I definitely don't want to. And I want to start off by saying that We want to show solidarity with the Afghan people, particularly our Afghan sisters, who are going to bear the brunt of whatever happens next. I think a really interesting topic or narrative that has re-emerged since the takeover of the Taliban in Afghanistan is this push by Western narratives to frame helping those in Afghanistan, particularly women, as a feminist cause. So going in to liberate or um, democratise Afghanistan to help the women who live there. Now, we know and everyone knows that the Taliban rule is detrimental and extremely dangerous for women's rights. And we've already seen and heard stories of women who work in the banking sector or in civil society being turned away from their jobs or women being told to go back and cover up. And this is just the start of a really horrible and dangerous slippery slope for the women there. But what has also re-emerged and what is very frustrating to see is the West's occupation with this narrative that occupying and creating war in another country is good for the women who are there. 20 years ago, it was George Bush and Laura Bush saying that the invasion of Afghanistan was to liberate the women there. And we are seeing similar narratives now as we discuss whether troops should stay in past the 31st of August and what kind of support the West can give there. And I think a really interesting quote that summed it up nice for me from from Rafaya Zakaria, who's an author of Against White Feminism, she commented in an article that said the US decided from the offset that war and occupation were essential to freeing Afghan women, no matter what those women themselves thought. And this is something we in the sector can help to change. We can amplify the voices of Afghan women and we can elevate their positions so that they speak on behalf of themselves. It's no good for us in the West saying this is what Afghan women want because we don't know, we don't understand the country, the culture and what they're going through. So if you're working in an organisation, ensure that you are amplifying the voices of Afghan women and make sure that any policy programmes and decisions made on of Afghanistan and particularly the women there are made with their thoughts at the heart of it. For this month's episode, we're looking at big international gender conferences and asking how can we create mechanisms so that the big PR moments of money pledged and commitments made do actually make a real difference and grassroots organisations can actually hold these big funders and philanthropists to account when it comes to making change last. 
For the episode, I'm joined by the amazing Kavita Ramdas, who is the Director of Women's Rights Programs at the Open Society Foundation. Kavita has an incredible career, having served as a strategy advisor for MADRA, an international women's organisation, and then serving as the second president and CEO of the Global Fund for Women. She speaks passionately about the need for understanding how these big conferences work and talks about her experiences of going to Beijing back in the 90s and what it felt like to physically be in the room with those women from different countries who are experiencing the same thing as you. She talks about her hopes for the future and how young people inspire her to continue going and how the new normal after COVID cannot look like the normal we had before. If you enjoy today's podcast or want to find out more about the Women in Dev Network, give us a follow on Twitter at WomenDev and for Instagram at WomenInDev. Enjoy the episode. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Kavita, and for our first podcast episode, which we're very excited about and very lucky to have you as one of our first guests. When we were thinking about kind of topics of what to talk about, many of us had just been in uh, GEF planning, which I'm sure yourself and other people will will have been uh, doing as well. And, you know, it's 26 years on from the Beijing platform, um, which I think is probably hailed as one of the most important global gatherings of gender and with Hillary Clinton's kind of famous speech there. And this year we saw over 50,000 people coming together for the Generation Equality Forum and we saw huge commitments to money, you know, 40 billion, sorry, um, and some really progressive statements and commitment um, from all kind of states and actors and private sector. Mm-hmm. I think as we've kind of unwrapped it and as the kind of community starts to implement these these kind of commitments, I think there's a kind of sense of, well, how good was it behind the kind of shiny exterior? Where is that money going to and who is it going to? And how much were grassroots and kind of feminist organizations involved? Uh And I think for us, it sparked a conversation of, you know, do these big conferences work? And to an extent, if they do, how can we make them more inclusive and guess more feminist and progressive Uh in the way that we Uh do them? So that's where we are today. So Thank you again for joining us. So I think I'm going to start off by just saying, you know, you've had a career that spanned lots of different organizations. and I'm sure you've been to, to many of these kind of conferences. What was it like? What is it like going to one of them if someone's never been? And what were your hopes and going to kind of GEF this year? I didn't actually go anywhere to GEF this year because um, it was, um, I mean, not physically, you know, I participated. Participation, but I, yeah. But yeah, but I think... Um, I think I would say that, first of all, one, it's a pleasure to be um, invited. Thank you for inviting me. And it's really wonderful to be a part of this. I do think that um, the role of these kinds of gatherings, and you began with saying 26 years ago, Beijing, and actually I was in Beijing as a um, wow. 20, no, 31-year-old or 32-year-old. And I was there in my capacity um, working with the MacArthur Foundation where I was working on issues of poverty and inequality in the United States mm-hmm. and was fortunate to go with a delegation of um, 20 amazing Latina and Black activists from Chicago as wow. part of the Ms. Foundation's delegation um, uh, of, uh, of women going to Beijing. And um, 
it was a very special occasion for many reasons. Um, so I'm originally from India. My mother was part of the official Indian delegation, meaning the government delegation. And mm-hmm. my younger sister, who has been, was a veterinarian and an activist on food sovereignty and um, women's leadership at community level, barefoot veterinarians, um, was there in her capacity as a member of the non-governmental delegation from India. So, you know, there was something very special about those gatherings in that time. And I think partly it was, and I think this is important for us to understand when I think it's easy to be cynical about what these gatherings actually do. For so many women who were at Beijing, it was perhaps the first time that they had gotten on a plane. It was the first time that they were representing their country or their voice had been heard in a public space or their um, their critique of the way their governments were positioning women's rights, what they said that they were doing, but what was actually being done. Um, it was the first time a woman from Iran completely covered in hijab was meeting a young woman from Tajikistan who, who had, you know, who had grown up under Soviet occupation and had always thought that she could work and study and travel. It was an opportunity for the women who I had been working with in public housing in Chicago to meet people who were struggling with the same kinds of issues that they were, but in even more stressful circumstances. So I think that one very important part about, you know, when we say, do they work? I think the question is, work towards what? What is our intended outcome? What, What is it that we are looking for? And at a particular moment in in particularly women's movements in which for so long women have been silenced, invisibilized, made to not matter inside their societies, told that their opinions and that their positions and their understandings of the world are irrelevant. In that context, the power of these um, gatherings, whether it was the 1975 UN Conference on Women or whether it was the... 1994 conference in Cairo on uh, population and development in which women said, look, it's got not to do with like whether we have access to contraception. It has to do with whether we have freedom as human beings. So I think a lot of the when we ask the question, do they work? I think we must ask an additional question. Do they work to give women voice and power? Do they work to put pressure on governments? Do they work to force philanthropies to step up to the plate in ways that they wouldn't otherwise. So the working is not useful unless we ask towards what end. What is it that we hope that these conferences allow us to do? And what I've seen is that they allow for many different things. They also allow, because again, patriarchy has been so clear that in fact, if you did allow women to come together, if you did allow them to talk to each other, if you did allow them to strategize, and remember in 1996, this is at the early stages of the internet. This is not a place where this is not a time when women could easily connect to each other. Telephone calls were still very, very expensive. Um, So it was not an easy thing for Um, In the years leading up to Beijing, that's why I mentioned 1975 and 1994 and the Vienna conference in which domestic violence was finally recognized as a form of a human rights violation. 
it was important for women to physically be together because there were very few other ways in which they could build those linkages and those connections and the kinds of things they took forward from those gatherings the 1985 conference in nairobi is what created the global fund for women it was the three women who happened to be at the 1985 conference who met each other and who met all these amazing grassroots women's groups who were in nairobi and realized wow none of them have access to any grants all these big foundations they don't make grants to these women's groups so i think in many ways particularly in the earlier phases physical coming together of women from different parts of the world was a very solid and very substantive contribution that a big conference could make in actually providing fuel for the sense of transnational movement building it is very difficult to build movements without the core piece of relationships and women have always understood that movement building is built on relationships exactly. and so it is very difficult to build those kinds of effective movements if you don't have the relationships that kind of hold it together long after you've returned from the conference yes that that sense of like that is the woman i shared a room with that is the woman i went who helped me carry my wheelchair up the you know there was no disability access in beijing and women wow. all came together to help the women in wheelchairs and the women who had disabilities we carried people up the stairs to conference rooms we made wow. sure that um somebody who could sign would do deaf and dumb you know for for people who were um handicapped um audio by audio or by visible by yeah. visible issues so in all of those ways i would say that those conferences were powerful for those reasons yeah. it also broke down assumptions you saw a woman in full hijab and you thought oh she must be this poor oppressed woman and then she opened her mouth to speak and you were like what the wow yeah who is this amazing woman you know like what is she what is she saying about the situation of women in iran what is she telling me about how you can be a feminist and believe in islam what is she she's blowing my mind about all my assumptions you know so i think those are also important things to understand whether on the next front um whether these big conferences work in terms of mobilizing resources and funding mm-hmm. I think that is a more complicated question and in part I think there it has been very difficult part of the reason we have had generation equality forum is because the UN today 26 years after Beijing yeah. is so much more conservative place wow yeah UN was back then to be able to discuss the kinds of things we discussed in Beijing to come up with the kind of platform that we came up with in Beijing we would never get that in today's un there are so many more conservative governments the government of india would never have signed on to half of the things the government mm-hmm. of all these other countries 189 countries signed on to that platform for action today half of those countries are run by authoritarians by regressive um regimes by people who believe that women got too much too much um, power to begin with who need to be kept in their place so in some ways yes there was a there was a power of a particular moment that that big conference enabled and then now from if you take it from beijing to where we are now mm-hmm. probably what has happened i would argue is that the un has become much less bold 
the UN has become much mm. the UN has become much less of a true space for internationalism and much more of a um, much more dependent on donor governments, not a place really where nations of the world come together and much less a place where peoples of the world come together, but much more a place where a few powerful governments that have a lot of money um, can influence the UN to go one way or another. And then a lot of other governments that may not have money but have profound influence are able to influence each other. So because in the United States, for example, the United States is the single largest donor to the UN, mm-hmm. because we have struggled so much with strong conservative movements inside the US, we have gone from, you know, we've, we've flipped back and forth, right? depending on whether is there, a, is there a Republican government in power or is there a Democratic government in power? And depending on that, it doesn't just have an impact on the US. It has a profound impact on the whole rest of the world, because as the US goes, so funding for these causes, including causes for women's rights goes. And so if the UN is so dependent on the US for money that, you know, today the UNFPA gets money, tomorrow there's a Republican government and there's a global gag rule, you know. So do these big conferences work? No, they only work insofar as you actually understand the rest of the global power system within which decisions are made. And it's not that these conferences exist outside of the existing power dynamics of a global system. So I would say, you know, as with all of these simple questions, the answers are not so simple. Exactly. I think that I, from my own experience of having been at a lot of these, um, you can take some really powerful things away from these conferences and you can take very little away because it's very easy for these big governments and for big philanthropies to go to these conferences and say, oh, we are going to do this. We're committing this much. We're going to do this much. And then what is the process for accountability? Who is holding those organizations and those countries and those donors accountable for what they are saying they will do? When the Open Society Foundation, where I work, says we're going to give $100 million towards supporting feminist movements, what potential does the rest of the world and what potential do feminist organizations and feminist movements have to go back to the Open Society Foundation and say, that was fantastic. Thank you. That's so exciting. Now, every year, will you tell us how you spent the money? How much did you spend in 2021? How much did you spend in 2022? You said 100 million over five years. What will that actually look like? Can Can you publicly and transparently spell that out well how many foundations are really willing to do that how many foundations are willing to hold themselves to kind of a public accounting yeah and we don't really have i mean so many of these very very large and wealthy people individuals and foundations are not even governed in the same way that we expect of nonprofits. you have the gates foundation governed by a three-person board of whom two people are married to each other yeah or soon you know, to be divorced. <laughs> or soon to be divorced. And yeah. if can you imagine whether we would be willing to make a grant to a small nonprofit in which a husband and wife were married to each other and there was their uncle on the board with them and those were the three people? No, we would never make them a grant because we would make them jump through a thousand hoops to say, well, how do we know that we can? So before we give them $10,000, 
we would make them jump through all these hoops to prove that they really are a charity, that they're really doing good work, that they're really... But here we are in billion-dollar foundations, and there is absolutely no accountability. Nobody has to force a public foundation, a private foundation in the United States to reveal how they're structured, who they're structured, whether they have an LLC, whether they do it through... There's zero accountability. And so I think that is where there's a little bit more accountability in terms of what um, what we call bilateral donors yeah. do in mm-hmm. terms of, you know, and that's because they're using taxpayer money. Yes. And so they have to actually account for that in different ways. And, they, and there is a way in which, you know, you can hold them to account. But honestly, it's extremely difficult to get, you know, and then you have all these private sector players, right? Exxon Mobil saying, oh, we care so deeply about women and girls. Meanwhile, we're dumping oil into, yes. you know, the Arctic or where. So, you know, what is this? Is this greenwashing? Is this pinkwashing? Is this whitewashing? What does it mean when we say, oh, we're creating, um, you know, alliances with the private sector? If yeah. Gucci and Chanel and, you know, whatever, all these luxury brands yes. are really wanting to support women's rights, And actually, you know, what we've learned is that the whole system that we have right now, this capitalist system, do we really need like 75 Gucci bags? No, we actually really don't. We are living in a world where people can buy Gucci bags for, you know, $8,000 and where kids don't have drinking water. Yeah. Or the women who made them were not paid any sort of Or the women who made them were were not paid decently or was experiencing sexual harassment in the workplace. Exactly. Or are not allowed to unionize. Yes, exactly. You know, so so I think for me, I think that is the space where we still have a big gap and that has very little to do with the format of a conference and it has everything to do with the structures of both patriarchy and capitalism that currently exist in every country in the world and across the world and make it very difficult then for women to be organizing, um, you know, in that space. In that space, yeah. Wow, a lot to unpack. Thank you. And thanks so much for sharing, you know, that you were, you were there and your mother and your sister were there. I just want an incredible picture that is and what an incredible moment it would be. And it's something I hadn't really thought about. And probably that's because I'm so used to the idea of connecting with people over, you know, I can connect with a woman in India or connect with them across anywhere. But that physical kind of meeting and being and understanding each other on that on that kind of personal level I guess to obviously turn it on its head with the Generation Equality Forum, we were in a space where we couldn't meet, right? And lots of people mm. couldn't come in person mm. for, for due to the pandemic. Do you think in some ways that the pandemic has opened up those, those because of the access? Um, obviously, it depends on people having access to internet or, or those kind of technologies. But do you think that it has opened up in some ways for people to be able to be involved that maybe couldn't be there in person? Absolutely. I mean, I think overall technology, although it has, of course, brought its own headaches and its own um, challenges, um, has been, as I think we many of us hoped it would be, has been a very democratizing influence. I think that is why it's been so important for those of us who've been fighting for the Internet to remain a free and accessible space rather than one that, again, is basically dominated by global capital. And what we are seeing is 
that profound space that in the beginning felt like this incredibly liberating democratic space is increasingly being controlled, right? Facebook controls it, Google controls it, uh, all these different networks and these multi-million dollar companies are seeking to kind of limit what can be said, what cannot be said. Twitter decides whether Rahul Gandhi, the opposition leader in India, can even have a voice to say something against Mr. Modi. Um, But the same over here, at the point that finally they decided to take Trump off of Twitter, it was way too late, right? So, and again, how do we feel about that? How do we feel about the fact that media has now moved from a space where we argued that it was so critical for democracy to a space where actually there is less and less voice? And I think for when I think about what, the possibilities that the pandemic and, frankly, technology made possible for us as women's movements, but also as other movements. You talk to people in Tahrir Square around the Arab Spring, and you know what a powerful medium the internet was for them. When I was in India in 2012, in December, when that horrible gang rape of the young woman on the bus happened, again, it was young people in India who mobilized using their cell phones. And you know, ensured that there were so many protests out on the streets. And it wasn't just young women, it was women and men who were out on the streets. So I don't um, disparage technology. And I think that something like the GEF would not have been possible without the technology. And I think you're right, the fact that we can connect to someone sitting in Burkina Faso or sitting in India or sitting in is extraordinary and wonderful and powerful but i do think that it is fundamentally different than being in that space with them together and seeing what their life is like and being able to experience it and at the same time i will say that i think we are learning sadly and with a lot of now hindsight understanding that um, the amount of carbon that we've put into the earth Um, put into the atmosphere because of all our flying around the world and I don't think by the way I think all you could put all of the women's conferences together and we would not be a fraction of the amount (laughs) that businessmen have put into the world flying all around the world so I'm not feeling guilty in that sense but I think we have realized that um, we have to think differently I think the pandemic and climate change are forcing us to realize that there's no going back to normal. There was nothing normal about that normal. No, nothing. I agree. There was nothing normal about it. It was based on an unbelievably arrogant human assumption that it was our job to dominate the world yes. and to dominate the earth. And, you know, basically the earth has basically said, I'm sorry, children, I've tried to explain this to you thousands of times, but you don't seem to learn. And so I'm going to send a pandemic and I'm going to basically make it almost impossible for you to survive on the planet. And, you know, I still don't know if we're going to learn, honestly. I don't think we're particularly good learners as a species. But yeah. um, so I would say I think the the power of a GEF being able to be done via a set of virtual convenings was that we did get to hear from feminist voices. We did get to hear perspectives. Um, Are those voices on par with or equal to the power of global capital, including what I'm increasingly calling imperialist philanthropy? Um, No, no, they're not on par because 
those voices in the spaces that have money still control so much of the world's resources. But have feminist movements been able to have an impact? Absolutely. I think the whole way the GEF was organized, and I have to give credit to Fumzile and her team at the at UN Women, my colleagues Lopa Banerjee and Vivek and um, Sarah Hendricks and so many others, um, um, Tine, and was they really, really, really made an effort to yeah. be inclusive. Yes. They reached out to feminist movements all over the world. They had dissenting voices. They made sure that we talked about feminists of all genders. They yeah. they made sure that we heard from voices from both lower and middle income countries as well as from very wealthy countries. Yeah. Power can be measured in many different ways. And I think that um, we may not have power, feminist movements may not have power of the purse, but they have power of their voice. They have yes. power of their movements. They have power of their legitimacy in the communities where they work and more and more I think um, the the effectiveness of the process that we went through and the fact that they were coalitions however complicated those coalitions might have been it was for the first time perhaps that um, feminist activists could sit in the same room with philanthropists and government officials that was important It isn't perfect. It doesn't mean they have the same ability to hold those entities to account. But I really felt that it made a big difference. um, And it was a first. And so, again, um, if we go back to the focus of this podcast and we say, well, you know, do these conferences work? I think we'll again ask the question, do they work to do what? And I think in this case, GEF did work to present a different way both of actually organizing the event, which is, oh, you could do this without putting hundreds of thousands of pounds of tons of carbon into the air. You could do it virtually. You could connect um, across regions. You could get people to use the word feminist. Personally, I'm just thrilled at the fact that the Open Society Foundations has kind of had our top leadership you know, commit Mm -hmm. to feminist leadership and commit to feminist movements, I consider that a a win. And I consider it a wonderful thing to have made, to have made a public commitment in this way, because to me, what it means is that for the next five years, all the feminists in the world get to come and ask the Gates Foundation and the Open Society Foundation and the Ford Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation and uh, Children's International Investment Fund, all of these leaders of these action coalitions. Hey, so how are you doing on those five years of commitment that you made? Exactly. Um, you know, how's that going for you? Um, can you tell us? Can you share who you've made the investments in? And to push them to have greater transparency and to yeah. push them to be more accountable. And I think that wouldn't have happened without... Um, GEF being structured in the way that it was. In the way it was. I think it's really interesting. I, I want to talk about the accountability aspect of after that because I think it's a really important point to come into, but just kind of quickly, because I think we expect these conferences to be perfect. And and what I'm hearing from you and, and kind of reflecting on now is that they do reflect some of the power imbalances that we see in everyday society. You know, of course, you know, you're still gonna have states and big you know as you as you said imperial philanthropists having this money because that's how society works and I think sometimes you know as feminists we can be like why was there not you know 
a youth in every session, a young person in every session, or why was there not, you know, an indigenous person in every session or something like that. But we forget that we're still trying to combat these power dynamics and that actually, as you said, maybe the UN is actually slightly more conservative now, even back in the kind of 90s, which is also an interesting point. On the accountability, it's something we've been thinking about because... I when I saw this commitment and obviously all and all of us in the sector I was like this is great amazing and then as I started to unravel it and some of the conversation you've had is I think how how do we hold them accountable is it a case of just knocking at you know out these funders doors and saying hey what are you up to how are you spending this money who is it going to what are your criteria are there any better accountability mechanisms that you could see us implementing that we're not at the moment I think it does require um, really good organizing by feminists transnationally and regionally. I think it requires, just as we came together for GEF, I think it requires feminist movements to come together and say, what are our what are our expectations? How are we going to do this? What will be the accountability mechanisms? I think certainly as someone who's worked inside of philanthropy for a long time, my, uh, you know, I've, I've heard many people in philanthropy say, oh, you know, I don't want to go to a meeting where there'll be grantees because people will ask me for money. And as far as I'm concerned, that's my job. That's my job. My job is to be available to people asking for money. My job is to make sure that um, because I'm holding this money in stewardship, it's not my money. And frankly, even if it is my money, it's not my money. Because, you know, even if you are Bill Gates or Alex Soros or you know, Mackenzie Scott or Jeff Bezos or any of these people, the reality is, is that money, it's not really your money. It's money that you've accumulated because there is a highly unfair and highly skewed global capitalist system that allows people with capital to accumulate more capital, while people who work for a living have an incredibly difficult time being able to actually even survive. So the the question about accountability, I think one begins with the people who have money, particularly in the space of private philanthropy and global capital and corporate capital, being able to say that it is entirely appropriate for the civil society organizations of this world to come to them and say, so how is that going with that public commitment you made? And what is your accountability mechanisms for how you're actually spending that money? And we want to see that. We want to see that on your website. So one thing I think feminist organizations could do is to ask all of the international philanthropies that committed to this to have a site on all of their websites, which is a shared site that they work on together that actually does a recording that says in 2021, this is how we spent this much of the GEF commitment that we made. In 2022, this is how we spent this much. In 2023, this is how we spent. So that people don't have to come and like claw at them to ask for a you know Freedom of Information Act to try and find out, but they actually hold it accountable. Same way, I think you go back to UN Women and you say, hey, UN Women, this was great that you brought us all together. That's awesome. And it's great, you know, Secretary General Guterres, that you celebrated this GEF. And it's great, um, Deputy Secretary General Amina Mohammed, that you celebrated this. Now, what is the UN going to do to put up its accountability slides to say, here's what we have done. And here's what the government's government of France, Mr. Macron had a host, wonderful, lovely thing in Paris. Terrific. Thank you, Mr. Macron. Now, can you have something public on the French um, presidential website that says 
um, Kinesol France is planning to make good on our commitments. This is what we did this year. This is what we did this year. Don't make us go find this stuff. Share it and be proud that you're sharing exactly. it. Exactly. And don't and don't um, when and if you end up not sharing it or if the information is sketchy to say the least, then don't get all defensive when we have you know Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch or our feminist equivalents do a little digging to see like oh that was interesting actually you said you were going to do this actually did you it turns out you didn't and i think that is the role of civil society is to hold people's feet to the fire on this right i mean and so that is the way in which we claim our own voice and our own agency and our own power in this system is not by sort of sitting and whining and saying like, well, they didn't have enough representation or they didn't have, but by saying, okay, how are we going to organize? How are we going to make sure that this is actually happening? Are we holding, you know, whether it's a signed letter, whether it's you maybe go to four journalists and say, listen, they made this commitment in 2021, in uh, July in, or in June in Paris. Um we would like to have a series. Maybe it's with The Guardian. Maybe it's with somebody else. We would like to have a series for the next five years. How are you doing on GEF? You know, what's your scorecard? What's a public, can we have a public scorecard on how people are performing on their GEF commitments? That would be a concrete way of holding people accountable. And I think on that, feminist movements and leaders and organizations need to get together and be like all on the same page and be like, you know, yeah, you know, we want to know. And when people say like, well, yeah, we've made this commitment, but we're not really sure on how we're going to be um, uh, making this visible. You say, well, okay, well, you can have a little time to think about it, but um, we'll be coming back. And here we have some ideas and we have some ideas for you on how you can do this. What about the idea of a website that you all share? What about an accountability scorecard? What about, you know, these are things feminist activists know how to do. Exactly. We've been doing this for years. So why not do it on the issue of a conference? And then the do big conferences work question will be answered by feminists who are like, well, yes. it worked for this, 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 and this. Ah, didn't work so great on this, 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 and this, you know? But here's our rating. We're going to give them a C on this, but they actually got a B minus on this. They didn't do so bad. And I think what's really interesting is that we could, once we start, once it's kind of been done a couple of years, it will become norm that it's expected from there. And I think one of the frustrating things is that you think you must have worked this out. You know, you can't have, you have this information sitting somewhere. Why do you make it so difficult for us, for civil society, for journalists, for other people to access it? Um, and for any journalists listening, great idea for a series. So <laughs> that's a good one to snag now. I think I want to, I'm, I'm conscious of time. So I want to kind of pick your brain further than the topic that we have, because I think it's so interesting and and you've got so much to share but I think you know we've had this terrible pandemic over the last year and I think the impacts of the pandemic have obviously exacerbated inequalities and we're seeing now stories coming out of women particularly going back into the into the economy or you know um stories of of, of heightened gender-based violence and things like that what are your your hopes for the next couple of years as as feminist movements as we recover from from the lockdown and the pandemic and its effects? I mean, one thing that I really hope, you know, Arundhati Roy wrote so beautifully in her in her essay at the early part of the pandemic, she wrote about the pandemic as a portal. And she said, you know, I really hope that we can choose to walk through this portal carrying the dead carcass of the past behind with us. 
or we can choose to walk through this portal lightly, freely, um, not trying to go back to, as I said, you know, what we thought was normal. And I think that's really the opportunity um, Mm -hmm. for feminists particularly, because I think there is, there's a desperate need for an alternative vision of what our future will look like. It's not an accident to me that the people at the forefront of climate justice movements are disproportionately young women. It's not an accident to me that so many young people are saying, I'm not sure I want to bring a child into this into this world. It's not an accident that we're seeing birth rates falling um, because what human beings can intuit, what we can pick up is that we don't really know if there's going to be a world in which we can survive tomorrow. And I think that you know, we, we can't afford anymore to have this sort of siloed approach. You know, feminists cannot be saying like, oh, we care about violence against women and we don't give a damn about the fact that we have nuclear weapons that can blow us up like a thousand times over and the world will be done. You know, we don't get to make that choice. We don't get to say like, oh, no, we only care about like, you know, um, breast cancer and we don't really care about whether women can access an abortion. You know, that's not really for us. That's not our problem. And I think that that is something that the whole, you know, and people dismiss intersectionality and say like, oh, it's so jargony. We've been using male jargon for like 5,000 years. The first time a feminist movement comes up with something that actually explains the reality of how the earth functions intersectionally, as Audre Lorde said, we don't live single issue lives. So why should we have single issue movements? People are like, oh, intersectionality, that's like too complicated a concept. What is too complicated a concept? The concept that all of us are more than just a single story. The concept that all of us inhabit all kinds of multiple identities. The fact that more young people are checking multiracial as a box um, in census because we understand that we don't fit into these artificially created stupid categories of this person is white and this person is black and this person is this and this person... You know, this is what a new feminist vision has to present to the world, right? And it cannot be, we need a new feminist vision on economics. We need a new feminist vision on on the, on the ecology. We need a new feminist vision on how we organize as democracies. We need a new feminist vision for how we organize the world outside of national boundaries because nation states are inadequate for us to address the kinds of challenges that we're facing today. We've just, I mean... If the pandemic and climate change have not taught us of the inadequacy of nation states, then we are truly dumber than I thought we were. So again, for me, feminist movements don't just get get to be like, oh, we're going to work on women's rights over here. And like somehow that has nothing to do with all of the other questions around racial justice or inequalities or like, I mean, hello, no. We have to work on all of those things together. And we are working on all of those things together. You think that we would have had a shot at being able to have a different president than President Trump if it hadn't been for black women organizing in the United States? You are kidding me. You are kidding me. And you think black women haven't been organizing around racial justice issues for the last, you know, God knows how many years? You think we would be having the problems in Haiti today if the United States had not systematically disempowered the United States, France, all of Europe, systematically disempowered the people of Haiti for over 400 years because they were so threatened by the first slave rebellion in the world. 
no, these things are connected to each other. And if we want a different world, if we want to walk through that portal, if we want the internet to be a democratic, open, free space, then we have to fight the kind of control that like eight men in the world control more than 50% of the rest of the world. I mean, what kind of world is that? That is not a sustainable world. And for me, I really believe that our hope is because there actually are people thinking that way. We have amazing feminist economists who've been thinking for years about reciprocity as an organizing principle for our for our societies and for our you know ecology. The earth works on that principle. Like if we would have gone into working with the earth instead of from a place of domination and instead saying, oh my God, we have so much to learn from how nature does her stuff. Uh, we might be in a different place right now. We might not be in a place where we're thinking that our forest fires are going to be a way of living and where, you know, floods are going to, you know, take lives even in the most privileged of societies. So that's my hope for the future. You know, I think, and I think there is hope because I think, I mean, to me, every time I see Greta Thunberg, who I've been watching now turn from a 16-year-old into a whatever, 18-year-old, you know, there is hope. These are not all the Black Lives Matters protests in the U.S., this last summer in 2020, were organized by high school students. High school students. It was brilliant. It was brilliant. I know. So I, know. I don't, I'm not unhopeful because I think there's like amazing activism. I just, I just don't want to go back to the normal. There is, there was nothing normal about it. There was nothing normal about it. And I really hope, my, my hope is on young people, you know, saying, we're not going back there. That was so yesterday. It's it's like Naomi Osaka and Simone Biles and all these amazing people saying like, yeah, you know what? Mental health is important. So screw you. I'm not going to perform for you. I'm not going to like dance to your tune because exactly. you've decided you want to be entertained. You know? No. No. It's my body. It's my health. It's my well-being. And I think young people are saying to us, we have to bring that same kind of self-care to the earth. We have to bring that same kind of self-care to all of our societies. Why are we talking about a care economy at this moment? Because we finally realize that through that whole pandemic, not one of those bloody billionaires could actually do anything. And it was the nurses and the healthcare workers and the home healthcare workers and our domestic workers who were taking care of people. And if we don't turn around from being a capitalist economy to becoming a care economy across the board, well, more fools us. 